Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The Belcher Islands are an isolated group of islands in Hudson Bay, Canada. Due to its remote location, the Inuit who lived there were seldom influenced by the society of the mainland, especially in the early 1900s. Generally, they lived in peace, hunting to survive through the harsh winters. But when missionaries brought the Bible to the Inuit in 1925, two men took it upon themselves to declare they were God and Jesus. The men claimed that their bodies had been taken over by the deity and his son as a means of returning to Earth. Unfortunately, they hadn't returned with a message of peace. This is Monsters. The first time Canadian law made its way to the Belcher Islands was in 1920. Canada was still a relatively young country at the time, so the native Inuit in many remote regions were still governing themselves. The Belcher Islands had stayed especially off the government's radar because they were hard to get to. The Belchers are located in Hudson Bay, and many of the ships that ventured there in the summer had trouble landing on the rocky island. During the winter, the islands were only accessible by taking dog teams across the frozen sea ice, but it was easy to get lost or even hit a crack in the ice and fall into the water. The islands had only been formally charted in 1915 when famous filmmaker and prospector Robert Flaherty crashed his ship on the rocky shores. Flaherty and his crew spent nearly a year there exploring the islands and filming the indigenous population. Robert Flaherty is perhaps best known for his docudrama Nanook of the North, which depicted a somewhat fictionalized story of an Inuit family struggling to survive in the Arctic. The film has since been condemned as being somewhat racist and inaccurate, but at the time, the movie was the first major introduction for many in the Western world to Inuit culture. Flaherty's gear on the Belchers was what had inspired him to make the movie, and he'd even filmed a young man named Peter Sala driving a sled dog team who would grow up to become one of the leaders on the island. Before he left, Flaherty also named one of the largest islands after himself and left numerous illegitimate children as his legacy there and then never returned. Flaherty's most significant findings were that the islands were much more expansive than previously thought, at around 3,000 kilometers, and that the islands possibly held deposits of iron, which captured the attention of the Canadian government. Flaherty's fame and the possibility that the island held profitable resources finally brought the islands to the attention of the outside world. When government surveyors arrived in 1920, the people of the Belchers were friendly, They'd been trading with outsiders for nearly 200 years. The Hudson's Bay Company had set up a trading post on the mainland in the 1950s along the Great Whale River, the closest point on the mainland to the Belchers. The locals would visit when Hudson Bay froze over, traveling 80 miles or 130 kilometers by dog sled across the sea ice. They would trade fox, seal, and even polar bear furs in exchange for rifles and hunting equipment. That had been the extent of their relationship with Canada for almost 200 years before the government finally visited to impress upon them that they were part of a larger nation and subject to their laws. In speaking with the locals about Canadian law, surveyors quickly learned that there had been a murder on the islands two years prior in 1918. 
the Royal Canadian Mounted Police sent an investigative team to the islands to hold a formal trial. However, when the tribe began testifying about why the man, named Kiryushuk, needed to be killed, it became clear that they had not had much of a choice. Kiryushuk had been on a fishing trip that previous spring with his wife and a small group of people. Among them was a woman named Mukpalu. Kiryushuk had been openly flirting with Mukpalu to the point where Kiryushuk's wife became jealous. In the ensuing argument, the rest of the group left Kiryushuk and Mukpalu alone. Kiryushuk had never been a man who caused problems before, let alone violence. But when he was left alone with Mukpalu, he raped her and took her off into the wilderness before the others got back. At midnight, a sudden storm came through the islands which forced Kiryushuk and Mukpalu to hide in the fissure of a cliff. The storm was so intense that several arctic foxes ran into the fissure with them. This made Mukpalu worry about what other animals might be looking for shelter. If a polar bear ventured in, they wouldn't stand a chance. The rest of the fishing party had taken the rifles with them, leaving the two virtually defenseless. As Mukpalu was trapped in the fissure with him, Kadiushuk held a knife over her head and told her that if she kept fighting him, he would kill her. No polar bear came, so they made it through the night. Although she'd spent the night trapped with her rapist, Mukpalu said that the worst part of it all was the threat of being eaten alive. When Mukpalu later told her harrowing story to the jury, this part especially stood out. It gave perspective to just how different life was on these islands compared to the mainland. Mukpalu eventually escaped and made it back to the village, but Kadiushuk would not leave her alone. The villagers were forced to place sentries at the edges of the village, as Kadiushuk was trying non-stop to sneak back in. This went on for weeks, which meant their hunters could not hunt. They only managed to catch a few seagulls to feed a camp of 30 people, and had to begin eating the whale blubber reserve set aside for emergencies. The men of the camp got together and decided that they needed to choose between letting their family starve or killing Kadiushuk. When Kadiushuk was spotted returning to the camp, they shot him. The men involved explained to the judge that they understood they were under Canadian rule, but in dealing with true emergencies, they could not always wait for Canadian authorities to administer justice. There were 13 men who had been complicit in the murder, and they were all acquitted on the grounds of self-defense. At the end of the trial, the judge had all of the adults present stand up, raise their hands, and swear there would be no more killing on the islands unless it was an absolute matter of life and death. They were under Canadian rule now, and any further crimes committed on the islands would be prosecuted to the fullest extent of the law. Life-or-death situations were an everyday occurrence for the people of the Belchers. Hunting was dangerous, and there were polar bears roaming about. It wasn't uncommon to lose people trying to cross the sea ice. There was also sickness, the illness brought by white travelers being especially deadly as the Inuit had very little immunity to them. It was a different way of life. The fact that there was a governing body far away that decided they would mete out justice in a place where they couldn't even reach most of the year was absurd. Many of the people forgot about the trial, and much of the population of the islands wasn't even there. There were about 150 Inuit total on the islands, and only about 30 had been present for the trial. Shortly after the trial, the Hudson's Bay Company set up a trading post on the islands at the direction of the Canadian government, so they could keep a closer eye on things. The few newspapers that would cover the story would chalk up Kiryushuk's murder to superstition. That was because the Inuit believed that when someone committed a serious crime, such as rape or murder, it was because they were possessed by an evil spirit. Back on the mainland, their beliefs would be written up as childish and they would be criticized for being superstitious, an assessment that seemed to ignore the Western idea of demonic possession that very closely mirrored the Inuit beliefs. Demonic possession is still claimed by numerous murderers as the reason for their crimes to this day, BTK and Arnie Cheyenne Johnson being among the most famous examples. In 1925, an even higher power would make its way to the Belcher Islands. The Christian Bible had finally been translated into the Inuit language, and missionaries were eager to take their word of God to even the most remote places. The Inuit cover a vast range of the northern Arctic, but many of them speak the same language, or at least very close dialects. Thus, the missionaries were able to bring the Bible to all different tribes. They brought the new Bible to the Belchers and preached the word of God. 
Certain aspects of the Bible fit in very well with the Inuit beliefs, and many of the locals became enamored with Christianity right away, seeing it as merely an extension of their existing religion. The islands would stay largely out of the public eye until 1938, when Arthur C. Toomey went on an expedition to the wilderness off the east coast of Hudson Bay. He was working for the Carnegie Museum of Natural History to chart the area and write about the people and animals in the region. During his stay, he would get to know many of the people who would be involved in the tragic events that would later become known as the Belcher Islands Massacre just a few short years later. His account provided the only written glimpse into what life was like for the people of the Belcher Islands before their way of life was changed forever. Peter Sala was known as the best ice navigator on the islands, so Toomey hired him to guide his team. Peter was familiar with the technology to a degree and quickly learned the controls of the boats used by the charting team. Peter was usually the first person to befriend travelers and outsiders. He was very fond of the Canadian clothing style, and at one point he acquired a bowler hat and would often wear it to greet new white people on the island. Though these newcomers were often laughing at Peter's expense, he was just happy to put them at ease in a new place. Peter was also the tallest man on the islands and the best hunter, so everyone on the islands liked him. Having him around made the survey crew more approachable. The survey team were visiting the Belchers during the spring, which is what the citizens of the Belchers called the honeymoon season. During the spring, everyone would take a break from the never-ending work they needed to survive the winter. The men would hunt less rigorously, and the women would take a break from making clothing. Young couples would go off alone together, and people visited relatives that they hadn't made time for during the harsher months. During his expedition, Toomey went to speak with the Hudson's Bay Post manager, identified by just his first name, Bob, about his relationship with the indigenous people. Many of them would venture to the outpost in early summer to tell Bob about what had been happening all over the islands, so Bob would fill Tommy in on the local gossip. One man, a notable hunter and leader named Karak, spent a lot of time at the post that spring, usually to gossip with Bob or complain about whatever his wife was mad about. Sometimes Karak's wife was specifically mad about him going off to the trading post, so he would just hide there longer to avoid her. As summer wore on and the days grew shorter, the women began preparing for the long winter. They would gather moss and berries, fleece seal skin, and repair and make new boats for walrus hunting. They would make kayaks, each one alone needing 13 seal skins. Parkas took 20 duck skins. Shoes wore away quickly and they were constantly needing to be remade. Visiting in the spring may have given the outside world a false impression of life on the Belchers, and just how harsh the winters could be to a people who relied largely on hunting to survive. Toomey left while the weather was still nice and did not see what life was truly like there during the harshest months. Two years later, the winter of 1940-1941 proved to be the worst one in recent memory. Fish and walruses were scarce. Even the freshwater seals of the islands and lakes had all but vanished that year. The people of the Belchers lived more on the edge than the Inuit populations on the mainland because they had no caribou to rely on if the ocean was not providing game. There used to be caribou on the islands, but near the turn of the century, there was a significant amount of rain that fell, creating ice so thick the caribou couldn't get through to eat the lichen underneath. All of the caribou on the island starved to death. The lack of caribou had forced them to rely on eider ducks, creating a unique way to stay warm by making parkas out of the ducks' hides and feathers. The ducks could be a source of food as well. However, they needed to be careful with the eider duck population as they provided eggs and the only clothes warm enough for the harshest months of the year. Overhunting would mean death for everyone on the islands. The people of the Belchers usually camped in groups of 20 to 40 to keep resources manageable. A group of about 35 people camped near the south end of the islands were looking at the Bible for answers during that extremely trying winter. This particular group had become very religious thanks to the teachings of a man named Kitoiak. Everyone on the islands had heard of the Bible or met a missionary, but the group Kitoiak belonged to were especially interested. They were hoping that the Bible might provide them with some guidance on what to do in such an awful winter. Kitoiak was passionate and a good teacher. He'd taken the missionaries very seriously and studied the Bible intensely. 
His wife was also blind, so he often read the Bible out loud to her, which helped him memorize many passages. The rest of his group would gather often to listen to him read and hold religious meetings. By the 1940s, copies of the Bible were scarce and Kitoyak had the last one in his group. He often talked about Satan and Jesus, telling the tribe of Jesus' good deeds and of Satan's evil ones. He'd also begun to read from Revelations and tell them about the end of the world. A passage he quoted that stuck with the islanders was about the coming of Christ back to Earth. It read as follows. Immediately after the anguish of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will give no light, the stars will fall from the sky, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then at last, the sign that the Son of Man is coming will appear in the heavens, and there will be deep mourning among all the peoples of the earth, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. One of the most religiously devout amongst the tribe was Charlie Oyarak. He was 27 years old and a father of two children. He was short and prone to sickness, so he was not the best hunter, but he provided other valuable resources for the tribe. He was an Inuit shaman. As far as Charlie and many of the other Inuit were concerned, the Jesus they were reading about in the Bible had been a shaman too. Legend said that Inuit shamans used to be able to raise the dead, just like Jesus could in the Bible, but in modern times were no longer able to do so. In such a harsh climate, with death being ever-present in their lives, this gift would have been invaluable. Though Charlie was normally only a leader in a spiritual sense, the Inuit believed in times of crisis, the shaman was supposed to step up and find a solution. This applied especially to situations where sea animals were making themselves scarce. Because of that, many of those in camp were ready to follow anything Charlie said, as he was supposed to fix the food shortage. That winter, Charlie and some of the others had become so enamored with Christianity that they became convinced that the return of Christ was imminent, and he would bring with him the end of the world. The whole tribe was divided about this, though. Part of the tribe believed Jesus would be back any day, while the others still thought it would be farther in the distant future. Those who believed that God was returning soon stopped worrying about stocking up on food, as they wouldn't need it at the end of the world. The non-believers kept their usual supply and it was causing some tension within the camp. How exactly Jesus would return was vague. Some Inuit believed that every human and animal has a soul, and some even believed that inanimate objects have souls. On the Belchers, they believed that when people and animals died, their souls could wander the earth and possess other humans and animals. That meant that restless souls who were out to cause harm could possess a friend and change them into someone evil or that animal spirits could wander into people and merge with their souls. On a cold night in January, Katoiak was reading the Bible out loud to those in the camp, and they were having a religious discussion. Many witnesses said that the aurora was particularly lovely that night, and it wasn't the only thing lighting up the night sky. During the meeting, an exceptional meteor shower began raining down over the gathering. As they looked up in awe, some took it as a sign. Half of the tribe were already convinced that Jesus would be coming back soon, and with the passage about the heavens falling so fresh in their minds, they wondered if this might mean his arrival was imminent. For Charlie, the stars quite literally aligned. He was the shaman, and the stars were raining down just as the Bible had predicted. Suddenly, Charlie began shouting, quote, I am Jesus Christ. I am Jesus Christ. Whether or not Charlie wholeheartedly believed that the spirit of Jesus had possessed him is up for debate, of course, but to the tribe, he seemed sincere. He quickly recruited Peter Sala into his holy reincarnation, saying that God must have returned and inhabited Peter. Perhaps this made sense as Peter was the informal leader of the tribe and everyone liked him. He was a family man, he and his wife had two children, and he'd adopted a third. 
He provided for his family and for the tribe. So perhaps Charlie thought that God must have returned at the same time as Jesus and had picked the man most likely for God to inhabit. Or perhaps Charlie was afraid that he was not well-liked enough on his own to be taken seriously as the new messiah and had recruited the most well-liked man on the islands to support him. Those who were already preparing for the end times accepted Charlie's claims without question. Everyone in the tribe believed in the Bible, and those who had been skeptical that Christ's return was imminent seemed ready to change their minds. Perhaps the answer to their crisis had come. The tribe had been looking to Charlie to provide a solution, and he'd found one in a higher power. The threat of starvation would no longer be a problem if the world as they knew it was coming to an end anyway. According to Inuit religion, shamans can also bestow abilities on people. If Peter was genuine and not in some premeditated scheme with Charlie, perhaps Peter genuinely believed Charlie. It was within a shaman's abilities to be able to tell that a spirit had possessed Peter, even if he himself didn't realize it. Or perhaps the two had orchestrated the whole affair. Either way, Peter was quick to accept his role as God. From there, things escalated quickly. Right away, Charlie and Peter accused many of the sled dogs of being agents of Satan, or perhaps even possessed by Satan himself. They needed to be killed. The tribe took their rifles and began dispatching most of them. Killing the dogs was also a show of faith, as it proved they didn't need their worldly possessions at the edge of the apocalypse. This also conveniently made it hard for anyone who may have secretly been wishing to escape to actually do so. Their only mode of transportation was effectively gone. To those who expressed worry about traveling, Charlie assured them that when the end times were upon them, they would be able to get around by floating freely through the air. Many of the tribe chopped off their long hair as they thought it would interfere with their flying. Around January 25th, about a week after the declarations, the tribe met in a large snow house to discuss the new messiahs and the religious revival. Attending the meeting were Alec and Sarah Apicock, two siblings who had taken drastically different views of the new god and Jesus. Alec, one of Flaherty's illegitimate sons, had become extremely devoted to Charlie, while Sarah, a girl of about 14, was skeptical. Charlie and Peter were explaining who they were and how they felt spiritually to give the tribe a more clear view of what was happening. Charlie said that he was inhabited by the spirit of Jesus, but that they were still expecting Jesus to come down from the heavens in a physical form when the end of days happened. Peter said he had been changed in who he was on the inside, and there he felt the presence of God. Sarah was having none of that. She said, quote, You are Peter Sala on the outside, and you are Peter Sala on the inside. Immediately after Sarah accused Peter of being a fraud, Alec grabbed her by the hair and hit her several times with a wooden stick. He then threatened to decapitate her with a knife for saying such blasphemous things. Hysteria quickly took hold. Another follower wanted to know if Sarah might be Satan. To test that, he brought a small fire-lit lamp up to her face, saying that the light would let him see if she was good or if she was evil. The follower looked at her face reflected in the flames and declared her evil. Sarah asked for mercy, but they did not listen. Alec hit her again across the head and she passed out. The congregation dragged her outside of the snowhouse. Akinek, a deeply religious and unstable girl of about 16, followed Sarah outside. Overcome with religious fervor and believing the devil lay in the snow before her, she decided it was her duty to finish Sarah off. She bashed Sarah's head in with the butt of a rifle. Then, Akinek walked back into the snowhouse, bloody and cold, and said, quote, My hands are frozen from killing Satan. Please thaw them out for me. To understand the fear that the tribe felt, it is important to remember that they believed evil spirits were the cause of many evil deeds. When someone was murdered or gravely hurt, it was often because the person responsible for such monstrous acts were possessed. If Sarah were to be possessed by an evil spirit, she would be capable of hurting anyone. At least outwardly, almost everyone at the meeting seemed content that Satan was gone. There was no doubt that if they disagreed, they were going to keep it to themselves after seeing what had been done to non-believers. Kitoiak alone was the only one who seemed ready to speak up. He was extremely disturbed by Sarah's death. Up until that point, he'd been ready to accept the new messiahs, but a young girl being beaten to death did not seem like the kind of thing the god he knew would be capable of. 
After Sarah was killed, Kitoiak spoke up and said, quote, I don't believe you, Charlie. This is not right. Charlie asked him to repeat himself, and he replied, quote, I said I don't believe you. You are not Jesus or the Holy Spirit. You're Charlie, Charlie Oyarak. The two scuffled for a bit, then Kitoiak stormed out. When he saw Sarah's lifeless body outside, he became overcome with grief and kicked in part of the snowhouse. Kitoiak went back to his igloo nearby. After thinking for a short while, he decided he needed to try harder to stop the madness. He couldn't let things get worse. He went back to the snowhouse, but after what had happened to Sarah, he decided to approach from a window and speak to those inside from a safe distance. When he peered into the window, Peter Sala's mother yelled in terror that Satan was outside the window. Kitoiak pleaded with his tribe to see some sense, saying, quote, I need your help. Won't any of you come to my side? Come to my side and believe in the true God. To this, Peter responded by accusing him of being Satan, which Kitoiak protested. Peter insisted, quote, I am God and I say you are Satan, to which Kitoiak bravely retorted, quote, there is only one God, and he is not here in this snowhouse. To end the argument, Peter grabbed a loose wooden board and threw it through the window, hitting Kitoiak in the mouth. Peter proudly announced that he had struck Satan, and Kitoiak fled back home. While he was there, he read through his Bible before falling asleep. A witness who chose to remain anonymous would later tell author Lawrence Millman that during that night she'd snuck into Kitoiak's house to spy on Satan. She swore that when she looked into the igloo, which was completely shut off from the wind, the pages of his Bible were moving like grass moves in a strong wind. She retreated, convinced that Kitoiak was in fact the devil. In the light of day, the tribe felt brave enough to confront the man that they believed to be Satan. Peter walked up to Kitoiak's igloo and started prodding him with a harpoon. He tried to get a reaction out of him, but the non-believer remained stoic, so Peter stabbed him with the harpoon, causing Kitoiak to retreat inside his igloo. Another member of the tribe showed up with a rifle and killed Kitoiak. Normally, the tribe would bury their members in fresh animal skins and then lay stones over them. However, they believed Kitoiak was evil, so they threw rocks at his body until it was covered and that served as his burial. They buried Sarah in the same manner. After the bodies were buried, the tribe took Kitoiak's beloved Bible and burned it. They wouldn't need religious texts anymore now that God and Jesus were among them in the flesh. Shortly after, it was time to move camp. They'd been on Flaherty Island and were hoping the hunting might be better on another island. They traveled for about two weeks and merged with Carrick's camp nearby on Tukarak Island, which was just a stone's throw from Flaherty's wrecked ship. As they were building new igloos, Charlie and Peter began trying to convince the new members of the camp of their status as gods. Though Carrick was portrayed as a bit of a scoundrel, despite being friendly and fun in the 1938 survey, those who knew him personally saw him as somewhat unstable. Carrick was rumored to have been a bit too much of a gun enthusiast. He would threaten people often with his rifle with little provocation, and he and his wife would hit each other. Carrick was quick to believe Charlie and Peter, and he let them preach freely. Charlie began preaching about the end of the world, and he assured his followers that it was not something to be feared. Rather, they should embrace it. He also very quickly started talking about those who did not follow his teachings should be killed. Among the group in Karak's camp were Katoyak's son, Ikpak, and his wife, Eva. It's unclear in all accounts if anyone informed Ikpak of how his father was killed, but the Inuit on the islands were all very close, and it's likely someone would have at least told him his father had passed, even if they were afraid to say how. Ikpak had confided in his wife that he didn't believe Charlie, but she urged him to keep his ideas to himself. However, one day during Charlie's preaching, it became too much for Ikpak. Around February 9th, during one of Charlie's sermons, Ikpak interrupted with, quote, you are not Jesus Christ, and the world is not coming to an end. The two got into a heated argument, and Ikpak stormed off to the sea ice. Shortly after that, Charlie found Karak and simply said, quote, Jesus will be coming soon, and he will not want to meet people like Ikpak. Eva was actually Karak's daughter, making Ikpak his son-in-law, but Karak was devoted to the new Jesus, and the familial tie meant little to him. Charlie ordered Kark to shoot Ikpak while he was still out of earshot on the sea ice. Kark complied without question. 
He took aim and shot Ikpak twice in the back. Then Charlie urged him to shoot him again just to be safe. So Karak shot his son-in-law one final time in the head. After that, Charlie proclaimed once again that Satan was dead and pointed to an imaginary halo on his head. When questioned, Eva quickly agreed that she was glad her husband was dead and that he had indeed been Satan. Of course, if she had said anything else, she might have met the same fate as him. Things calmed down after that for a time. The people who hadn't been in the old camp now witnessed the power that Charlie and Peter wielded, and everyone had either bought into their cult or they were too afraid to speak up. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. As March started ticking by, the new manager of the Hudson's Bay Post, Ernie Riddle, started gearing up for a trip to the mainland. He needed to make one last mail run before the sea ice melted. Ernie was oblivious to what had been happening on the islands, and he hired Peter to guide him. Peter may have been God, but he was still the best ice navigator, and someone had to get the mail. The journey took two days, and when they stopped for camp both nights, Peter seemed to be in distress. He wouldn't tell Ernie what was wrong, but said multiple times that he was a bad person. Ernie tried to reassure him, but Peter rejected those assurances and his mood did not improve, nor did he disclose what was troubling him. When they reached the outpost at Great Whale River on March 15th, Peter and Ernie split up. Peter went off to talk to Harold Undergarden, who was known by many of the Belcher citizens. He spoke their language and affectionately called him our white brother, even though he was half Cree. Peter trusted Harold a great deal and started confiding in him about what was happening on the Belchers. Meanwhile, Ernie had gone off to relax with two men who were manning the post. The three were catching up when suddenly Harold burst into the room, asking the men if they'd heard about the murders. They all had no idea what he was talking about. Harold filled them in and Ernie quickly sent a telegram to inform the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. The telegram read, quote, have received information that three murders have been committed recently in Belchers. Advise immediate police investigation. The police responded back asking for more information and the men were unsure of how to proceed. They didn't have too many details. Ernie was close with the indigenous people and didn't want to bring about a disproportionate response. The men decided to go to Reverend George Nielsen for help as it was clear the murders had been due to some kind of religious crisis. Nielsen had been to the islands and knew some of the locals. When they spoke with Nielsen, he was deeply concerned and wanted to help. It was two weeks before they finally collected the mail and prepared everyone for the journey back. They got back to the islands around April 2nd. As they neared the shore of the islands, they spotted Karak out hunting. When they got close enough to greet him, the man burst into tears. It turned out that while they had been gone, just days before on March 29th, things had gotten much, much worse on the islands. Peter's sister Mina had been camping with a small group of about eight adults and their children, just a short distance from Kark's camp. Though they were siblings, Mina and Peter did not seem terribly close. However, since Charlie and Peter became the new messiahs, she'd become rather close with Charlie. When he declared that he was Jesus, she left her husband, Mosi, to become Charlie's lover. Charlie may have been a widower or no longer with his wife at that time because no reports ever mention his wife or her part in what happened on the Belchers. In addition to being Jesus' lover and God's sister, Mina was a tall and physically imposing woman. On March 29th, Charlie had left to go hunting for the day. That left Mina in charge by default, as no one would dare try to tell a woman so close to the Holy Trinity what to do. It was particularly cold that day, about negative 22 degrees Fahrenheit or negative 30 degrees Celsius. It was snowing and the wind was blowing. Newspaper accounts from the time would call it a blizzard, but the weather was not unusual for that time of year. Everyone who wasn't out hunting was spending the day in their snow houses, and Mina was spending the day pondering the end of the world. She became convinced that it had been long enough. Surely the end was upon them. She got the idea in her head that Jesus was on his way. 
She ran from igloo to igloo, spreading the good news and telling people that Jesus was about to arrive. Mina was in an excitable state and dancing as she ran. She coaxed the people out of their igloos and got six adults and seven children to follow her. Only Eva, Ikpak's widow, avoided her delusions and stayed inside with her children. They all went outside and gathered around the dancing Mina. She said that Jesus would descend from the heavens, paddling a kayak through the clouds. Then she told them they needed to run out to the sea ice to greet him. Mina was carrying one of the sealskin sled dog whips with her that day, and she wasn't afraid to use it. Those who didn't march to the sea ice fast enough were lashed at. Mina brought everyone far out onto the sea ice. Then she said that Jesus wanted to meet them as he made them. She ordered them to strip off their clothes, though she kept her own parka on. Some of the children refused, so she grabbed their coats and pants and ripped them off. She was still dancing in between taking the clothes from the children. She also disrobed her own mother. The adults complied, reluctantly in the cold, and soon everyone but Mina was naked. In negative 30 degrees, frostbite would take only 10 minutes. With the wind blowing the way it was, it would have set in much sooner. After a short while, some of the mothers decided that Jesus might not be coming and that they might all be in danger. They started trying to dress their children, but frostbite had already rendered some of the parents and children unable to walk or move their hands. Peter's wife, Anotalik, tried to talk some sense into Mina, saying, quote, Help me with the children or they will freeze. To which Mina replied, quote, the world will soon be coming to an end, and then they will be fine. Anotalik managed to get her eight-year-old son Alec dressed, but he was unable to walk. She had her newborn baby with her and could not carry them both. Mina's ex-husband, Mosi, grabbed the children he could, and the other mothers on the ice all managed to grab their own children. Mina's own sister and mother were already too weak to walk. Anotalik was just barely able to stumble back to camp carrying her baby on frostbitten feet. She left her boy Alec behind. Mina followed those going back to camp, leaving her mother, sister, and her sister's two young children, seven-year-old Johnny and six-year-old Johnazy, to die on the sea ice. Peter's adopted son, Moses, had ventured out onto the ice too, but at 13, even if someone had been able to go back for a child, they likely would have picked up one of the children that was easier to carry. No one went back for those that had been left behind. Everyone had been weakened by the cold, and there was no guarantee that they'd be able to find the random spot on the ice where the others had been left in the heavy snow. Two days later, they found all six bodies frozen to the sea ice. When Charlie returned, things calmed down. There are no more documented accounts of him trying to preach or give sermons. When Peter returned just days later to find so much of his family dead, the cult seemed to have found an end. Jesus still had not made an appearance in the flesh, and the children had died, but the world kept going. Peter and Charlie could find justice and reasoning in the people they'd helped kill so far, perhaps genuinely even believing that those people had been Satan, but they could find no sense in the deaths of six women and children. Ernie sent a telegram to the Mounties telling them that six more deaths had happened, and to please send help soon. Reverend Nielsen went out to all of the camps reachable by foot to speak with everyone about what had been happening. After the children died, much of the religious zeal seemed to be gone. People seemed to be accepting the reality that the world might not in fact be ending. After just two days of wandering and speaking with the locals, Reverend Nielsen felt confident that there would be no more deaths. He did not share most of the details of what he'd learned with Ernie, as Nielsen knew that oftentimes when it was time for Canadian justice to be applied to the Inuit people, it would only lead to hanging. Nielsen seemed assured, but Ernie was not. He was being left in the dark by both the islanders and the police, but he was the man responsible for bringing them together. He was terrified there would be more deaths and was anxiously awaiting the Mountie's arrival. However, there was only so much the police could do. It was 1941 and World War II was raging back in the rest of the world. Every single pilot in the Royal Canadian Mounted Police and every one of their planes had been sent off to Europe to help with the war effort. They'd been trying to figure something out since the first message, and when they got the second telegram, they had only just found an old model Norseman aircraft. It was in disrepair, but eventually they cobbled together enough spare parts to get it working. 
On April 6th, the plane was ready for takeoff. The pilot went to the port city of Moose Factory to pick up two investigators and a coroner. Then the small team made its way to the Belchers. When police arrived, they found themselves without transportation because there were so few dogs left. Peter had taken the last remaining dog team to go to the mainland and get much-needed supplies. Ernie had made the call to send Peter alone, assured that Peter would not leave his people without food. The plane that investigators had taken was on skis, and the ice back on the mainland was already melting, so time was of the essence, otherwise the team could be stuck on the islands for months. Local citizens brought every last dog they had, and two days later the police were able to visit the camp at Tukarak. Ikpak's wife directed them to his body, which had been somewhat preserved by the cold. The bullet holes were clearly visible, and the frozen blood appeared almost fresh. Police inspected the six bodies of those who had died on the ice as well. They wanted to have the coroner look at the bodies of Sarah and Katoiak, but visiting the old camp on Flaherty Island before the ice melt was not feasible. The police left for the mainland on the 16th. They took Mina, Karak, and Adletok, the man that had killed Kitoiak, back to Moose Factory with them as prisoners because they were judged to be imminent dangers. Peter, Charlie, Alec, and Akinek had either been too far away to reach for questioning or were needed to provide for their tribe while investigations were being conducted. On April 18th, they reached Moosini, which was near the port city of Moose Factory. It was the largest city nearby with a strong police presence, and at 310 miles or 500 kilometers from the Belchers, there was little worry about the prisoners escaping. The prisoners had all come with police freely and had openly answered any questions about the murders. The investigators had to travel by dog sled, train, and rail jigger to get back to Ottawa and decide what to do next. Authorities eventually decided they would go back to the islands after the ice had broken up at the end of summer. Authorities began choosing the legal team. Justice C.P. Plaxton was chosen to preside because he was familiar with Inuit culture. J.P. Madden was chosen for the defense, and R.E. Olmsted was chosen to represent the Crown as the prosecution. Meanwhile, on May 22nd, the news broke that Mina had a complete mental breakdown. The newspapers described her as violently insane. There were no mental health hospitals in Moosini, so she was put on a train to be taken to Toronto. Karak and Adlatok, though, were thriving. At the time, Canadian police had learned that sending Inuit to jail would more often than not lead to them dying of tuberculosis, so they had Adlatok and Karak camp near a police outpost. The men were essentially just living the way they normally would, but in a slightly warmer place, where their food was provided for them. Adlatok in particular was enjoying seeing the mainland, despite the grim circumstances, and bonded quickly with the police watching him. The prisoners would go back to the islands months later on July 23rd. A small police party flew out ahead of the legal team to conduct further investigations and preliminary hearings. Police quickly got to work recovering Sarah and Kitoiak's bodies, along with the bodies that had already been examined. They then gave them a proper burial near the outpost. Charlie, Peter, Alec, and Akinek were promptly arrested. After observing Mina and having her evaluated, there was no question of having her stand trial. She'd been declared insane. The legal team began their journey in early August aboard the SS Fort Charles. Olmsted, Madden, and Plaxton were accompanied by two reporters from Toronto sent to document the trial. The trip from Moose Factory to the islands usually takes four to five days, but there was an excess of fog and inclement weather that dragged the trip out to 13 days. When the legal team finally arrived, they chose Ernie to be one of the jurors. The ship's engineer was also enlisted, as well as the reporters and two members from a geological prospecting party that happened to be on the island. Despite the care taken so far in the investigation, it was still the 1940s and investigators did not consider letting anyone who was not white sit on the jury, so they enlisted every white man who happened to be on the islands at the time. The trial began on August 19th. The legal team had brought a large police-issued tent to hold the trial in as there were no large buildings on the islands. Justice Plaxton wore the traditional wig, which seemed to amuse some of the locals. He sat at a table that had a British flag draped over it, and there was a picture of the royal family hung behind him. There was a great deal of interruption during the proceedings. Nearly everyone in attendance was coughing and wheezing. 
the legal team had brought back a nasty flu with them and the whole island had caught it rather quickly. The sickness was so bad that Katoyak's widow even ended up passing away from it. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over a hundred casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The trial lasted three days and all of the accused freely admitted their crimes. Although Mina was declared unfit to stand trial, she was still required to be present. Due to another mental breakdown, she was brought into court strapped to a stretcher. She would occasionally disrupt the proceedings by crying out and yelling. Though Mina was not to be tried, the members of the tribe still testified as to how her crimes had affected them. Peter's wife, Anautalik, gave her testimony while holding her young baby in a fur on her back, the baby that she had chosen to sacrifice her older son to save. If Mina understood anything that was happening, she did not show it. Her outbursts while Anotilik was testifying were no different than her sporadic outbursts for the rest of the trial. Alec and Akinik were put on trial first for the death of young Sarah. Akinik was only 17 at the time of the trial and was already a widow as her husband had passed away, so her mental stability was called into question. Her breakdowns and outbursts were not on par with Mina's, but she had been experiencing them as well. She also had a cleft palate birth defect, and apparently her tribe called her the Hairlip Woman, so the jury sympathized with her. Numerous witnesses came forward to say that they had been glad when Sarah was killed and had supported Alec and Akinik in killing her. One witness testified that he thought Sarah had been killed partly because she was refusing certain duties in the camp and not contributing to the camp's survival. All of the others who spoke up seemed to have genuinely believed she was Satan. In the end, Alec was acquitted as he had not personally killed his sister. Akinik was acquitted on the basis that she was temporarily insane. When it came time to judge Peter Salad at Laytalk on the death of Kitoiak, the testimonies closely mirrored those regarding the death of Sarah. Most of the tribe really did believe they were dispatching Satan when they killed him. However, one tribe member claimed he didn't really believe everything that Peter and Charlie claimed, but that he was afraid to speak up at the time. Finally, it was time to investigate the death of Ikpak. When the prosecution was questioning Karak, he said he did not dislike or have any quarrels with his son-in-law, but that he wholeheartedly believed Charlie when he told him that Ikpak was possessed by Satan. When Charlie was asked why he would order Karak to commit murder, Charlie said that he was simply not in his right mind during that winter. The judge asked Charlie if he still thought that Ikpak was Satan. He said that he did not believe that anymore because Reverend Nielsen had helped them to understand Christianity better. Mosi, Mina's former husband, testified on the stand that Charlie had initially tried to get him to kill Ikpak, but he refused. That implied the disturbing possibility that Charlie may have been planning Ikpak's death preemptively, perhaps because he was afraid he would avenge his father, but the legal team did not pursue that angle. Charlie also made the claim that it had been other tribe members who had originally named him Jesus, and he eventually started to believe them. This was not refuted nor supported by any other witnesses, but most reports claim that it was solely Charlie's idea to become Jesus Christ. In all, 16 witnesses testified that they believed Charlie and Peter when they claimed that those who had been killed had been possessed by the devil. As the trial came to a close, the judge and prosecution quickly sided with the defense. The prosecutor, Olmsted, said that he thought they should not even be holding the trial, as Canadian laws could not be applied somewhere that was so different from the land the laws had been based on. Olmsted said that the Inuit were, quote, the friendliest, happiest aborigine anywhere. And he said that hanging would not be a deterrent because their short memories would not remember the punishment. He did advocate for letting the indigenous people govern themselves in legal matters, but his reasoning was that they were too evolutionarily stunted to have Canadian law apply to them. Despite the unsavory reasoning behind the leniency in sentencing, all four men involved in the deaths were given rather light sentences that took into consideration the welfare of the tribe. 
Charlie, Peter, and Adlaytok were found guilty of manslaughter for both Ikpak and Ketoiak. Charlie and Peter were sentenced to two years of hard labor at the Chesterfield Inlet Police Post. Adlaytok was given one year at the same facility. Mina and Akinik were both judged not guilty by reason of insanity, but they were not allowed to remain on the islands because of the crimes they had committed and the danger they posed. Karak was found guilty as well, but if he were taken away in addition to Peter, they would be taking both of the island's best hunters away, both of whom also had families. Because of that, Karak's sentence was suspended. When Karak found out he would be staying on the islands, he cried out with joy, and he assured Peter that he would do everything in his power to get meat for his family. Most of the accused did not show much emotion during the trial, but Peter began to anxiously rock back and forth when sentencing was being discussed. Harold Undergarden explained the sentences to the accused in their own language to avoid any confusion. He explained that they were going to be taken to the north where a guard would watch over them. He also emphasized that their wives and families would be given rations from the Hudson's Bay Company store, and he asked them to choose the hunter they wanted to provide for their families while they were gone. The hunter would be supplied with any extra weapons and ammunition he would need to provide for the extra family. This seemed to calm Peter. It had not been decided if the men should be allowed to return to the place of their crimes after their sentence was over. Before he left on August 23rd, Justice Plaxton gathered up those who had attended the trial and made them promise there would be no more killing on the islands because the law would be keeping a close eye on them. In bidding them farewell, he both wished them well and tried to impress upon them that justice might not be so lenient next time. When Plaxton was finished, Peter Sala was the first to raise his hand to show his support and commitment to peace. As they were preparing Charlie, Peter, Adlaytok, Mina, and Akinik to leave their home, possibly for the rest of their lives, most of them went peacefully. However, Mina was still attacking the police and had to be placed in a straitjacket to be brought onto the boat. Upon arrival to the mainland, she was quickly brought to a hospital in Toronto and sedated for examination. While she was under, she was baptized to ensure her soul would be saved, as the hospital considered that to be an urgent priority. Clearly. The others were brought to Moose Factory, where they set up camp under supervision from the Mounties. The men were tasked with labor and repair jobs, though the police tried to assign them to mostly outdoor jobs, as mingling with the prison's population would mean exposure to disease. Despite the precautions taken by the police to attempt to protect the prisoners from disease, Charlie Oyerak caught tuberculosis and died on May 26, 1942. It's hard to say if Charlie ever genuinely believed that he had lived as Jesus Christ or not. Certainly, the pressure of the tribe to help in a crisis would have been immense. Perhaps he became deluded because he wanted so badly to help his people in a time of scarcity, but certain aspects of the way the cult played out could point to more sinister motivations. The fact that he had the sled dogs killed right away seems manipulative. It assured that everyone was unable to escape. Also, if he had indeed been preemptively planning Ikpak's murder, that points more towards a man who tasted power and didn't want to let go. A man who'd resorted to killing people just to keep his position rather than out of genuine fear of the possessed. Olmsted claimed that Charlie was mean and had a violent streak in him because his father had been murdered when he was very young. However, no one else ever described him as being violent or aggressive before the cult began. But this may have been an issue of the times, as most of the historic accounts that have survived in writing were written by white people, who at the time viewed Inuit as being inherently childlike and somewhat incapable of purposeful violence. If Charlie had indeed started the cult for selfish reasons, it's hard to see what his motivation would have been. There was never a sexual motivation for the cult, as there were in so many others. He'd had an affair with Mina, but by all accounts, she was the aggressor. He also didn't really gain any material possessions, as everyone lived on the edge of survival. But perhaps the power that came with being the savior was enough for him. He could order anyone who spoke against him killed without question. Whatever his motives truly were, though, they died with him. In the wake of Charlie's death, the other prisoners had to find a way to move on with their lives. On August 28th of 1942, after serving just a year, the four remaining prisoners were sent to the Great Whale River area. 
It was farther north and had a similar calignment to the Belchers. They were to be put in the care of Reverend George Nielsen, a familiar friend to them all. The men's families were to meet them there, and the men would be encouraged to hunt and trap to keep their skills sharp and provide for their families. A few other Inuit prisoners were sent up with them, and they were all to prepare for life on the outside together. The prisoners all seemed ready to live a life of peace after what had happened, especially Peter Sala. After their release, the small group was given a boat and they lived a nomadic life hunting in the Hudson Bay area. Neither of the women had any more breakdowns requiring hospitalization and Peter had made quite a name for himself among local hunters. In 1946, the group traveled to Port Harrison with a small group of Inuit. Upon arrival, they met Corporate Bill Kerr. He had been one of the men charged with looking after Mina's mental health while hospitalized and the two had become friends. Bill and his wife let Mina move in with them in exchange for housekeeping, though their house was rather small so Mina had little to clean and mostly spent her time looking after their dog. Peter and the others moved on eventually, roaming the seaside, but Mina elected to stay. Sometimes she would get restless and venture to other people's houses in the community and insist on tidying up. The town affectionately started calling her Blitzkrieg Bessie and there she lived out her days. Those around her, with the exception of Bill, likely had no idea that she'd once been responsible for the deaths of six people. Adlaytok eventually found a seaside community to his liking and settled down. Akinik did as well. She worked for a time as a seamstress before eventually succumbing to tuberculosis. Peter Sala was the only one who never seemed to find peace after his release. He would live a nomadic life, traveling with a small group of Inuit by boat and settling in different communities for a time. Back on the islands in the 1950s, the Canadian government decided it was time to get the citizens of the Belchers formally integrated into society. The government started making plans to bring the children from the islands into the Canadian Indian Residential School Program, so they systematically killed the sled dogs on the islands, just as Charlie's cult had a decade before. That slaughter was meant to weaken the citizens of the Belchers and make them dependent on outside help, as their transportation was gone. But shortly after they killed the sled dogs, government officials realized that it would be too costly to bring the citizens of the Belchers into the program, so they abandoned the plan. Though the death of the sled dogs likely caused human casualties as well, the citizens of the Belchers were spared the residential school program that would have almost certainly resulted in the death of numerous children. Throughout the program's tenure, it's estimated that up to 30,000 children died, and the people of the Belchers were among the few tribes that managed to largely avoid the program. In decades that followed, Christian missionaries made their way back to the islands again, along with Peter Sala. He was in his 80s and was allowed to move back to the Belchers if he so wished, to live out his final years. He finally made the trip home in 1982. He lived on the outskirts as he'd been gone for so long he no longer had any family in the area. On January 2nd, 1988, Peter Sala passed away. By that time, the Inuit had switched to more Christian funeral customs. Peter was buried underground and at the head of his grave they placed a white cross to signify the lifelong faith of a man who had once believed himself to be God. In the 1990s, a system of hydroelectric dams to the south of the Hudson Bay started disrupting the currents going into the Belcher Islands, which caused dramatic and seasonally inconsistent freezing of the sea ice. That crippled the eider duck population and is a problem that is still ongoing to this day. Though the isolation of the islands protected the citizens from the Canadian government's more bloody atrocities, life on the Belcher Islands has never been the same. Though the world did not end on that cold winter in 1941, the Belcher Islands Massacre and the publicity from the trial that followed did mark the start of the end of the traditional way of life for the people of the Belcher Islands. At the end of the day, even a group of people who are far from traditional society can find themselves in a situation where monsters are lurking. Whether or not they fully understood what they were doing, the people who lost their lives and the people who lost loved ones will always remember the monsters who claimed to be God and Jesus. If you're the victim of domestic abuse, please reach out to someone for help. Please talk to your local shelter or call the National Domestic Abuse Hotline at 1-800-799-SAFE. That's 1-800-799-7233, or you can go to thehotline.org to chat with someone online.
This website is set up so that, at any time, hitting the escape key twice will take you to a Google search page. That way, if your abuser is nearby, you won't get caught seeking help. If you're having feelings of harming yourself or someone else, or even just need someone to talk to, please contact your local mental health facility. Call 911 or call the National Suicide Prevention Hotline by simply dialing 988 in the United States. They're available 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, and will talk to you about any mental health issue you may be facing. If you are a member of the LGBTQ community and suffering from discrimination, depression, or are in need of any support, please contact the LGBT National Hotline at 1-888-843-4564 or go to lgbthotline.org. Thanks so much for letting me tell you this story. If you enjoyed it, subscribe on whatever platform you're on, hit like, rate us, or leave us a comment. You can check out our other show, Somewhere Sinister, on YouTube or anywhere you listen to podcasts. If you'd like to support the show, check out our merchandise at thisismonsters.com. The link is in the description. Thanks again, and be safe.